If you have been a Christian for a while, that is, if you have known Christ personally for some time now, it could be very easy for you to allow your familiarity with God's plan of redemption to rob you of the wonder of what God has done. Stop for just a moment and think about how everything in this world has unfolded. In eternity past, before there was anything in existence except the triune Godhead, God determined to create a universe and mankind. This decision was made with perfect knowledge of what would happen and the cost that would result. God knew that the human race, right down to every man and every woman, would turn against him. And God knew that the only way to bring men and women back to himself would be to do it himself, because left to ourselves, no man or no woman would ever make that choice on his own. And even if any human being would make such a choice, it would be impossible to come right back into a right relationship with God without rectifying the wrong that was done against His love and His holiness and His justice. Yet the decision to create was made, even though God the Father knew that it would cost Him the life of His dear, precious Son. And God the Son knew that it would cost Him, at least for a while, his glorious position in heaven. And ultimately, he knew it would cost him fellowship with his father when he became something abhorrent, a sinful sacrifice for the sins of those he himself had created in love. What an incomprehensible plan. It is summarized very simply and yet very profoundly in 1 Timothy 1.15, which says, Here is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Indeed, that true statement deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But listen to this point carefully. He only saves those who know they are sinners. What I mean is, all people are sinners. But not all will accept that fact. We are all sinners, but getting us to admit that and acknowledge that and really believe that is another thing altogether. And even when we do get to the point where we will admit that we are sinners, our natural tendency is to assume that we can take care of the problem ourselves. Somehow, some way, we can fix this. We can get it done. As one man put it, the two great barriers to salvation have always been refusal to recognize the need for it and the belief that it can be earned or deserved. Let me say that again. The two great barriers to salvation have always been, one, a refusal to recognize the need 
for it, and two, the belief that it can be earned or deserved. It is the first of those two barriers that we encounter in the text to which we come this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark chapter 2 as we continue our trek through this fast-paced gospel account written by Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Please follow along as I read verses 13 through 17, which will form our text of consideration this morning. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 says, Then Jesus went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. As we are looking at events recorded in this second chapter of Mark's gospel, it is important that we don't get so immersed in the details that we lose sight of the bigger picture. We we want to understand the details. It's important, but we also want to keep in mind the big picture, the the panoramic view. It is obvious in chapters 2 and 3 of this gospel that Mark is trying to show us two things. Number one the growing popularity of Jesus among the common people, and number two, the growing opposition against Jesus by the religious leaders in Israel. This culminates at the end of chapter 3 when the religious leaders of Israel commit the unpardonable sin by attributing to Jesus his power, doing his miracles, they said, in the power of Satan. This brief passage before us illustrates that polarization, the polarization that took place in the ministry of Jesus. He was popular with the common people, but he was eventually hated by the religious leaders. That's the polarization. He was popular with the common people because he offered them forgiveness. But he was hated by the religious leaders because they didn't think they needed that forgiveness. And that is exactly what we see in this passage before us. As we saw in the last message, which covered the story of the paralytic, Jesus proved his authority to forgive sins. Only God has that authority and that prerogative, and that's the point. Jesus is God in human flesh. Thus, he has the authority to forgive sins. He proved that by his authoritative declaration in verse 5, coupled with his miraculous demonstration in verses 11 and 12. So there is no doubt whatsoever that Jesus has the authority to to forgive sins. But here's the problem. The problem is that very few people 
are willing to see and admit that they are in need of His forgiveness. Most of us want to believe that we really aren't that bad. Our, our perspective is that we are not awful sinners. Hitler was an awful sinner. And Idi Amin was an awful sinner. But we aren't anything like that, so we think. Our perspective of ourselves is extremely inflated. And thus, our assessment is flawed and altogether inaccurate. We basically think we're okay. I mean, sure, we've done a few things wrong here and there in life. We've made some mistakes, but we aren't that bad. That's how we see it. And that is the first great barrier to salvation. So that is why Mark wrote verses 13 through 17, which we read just a moment ago. The goal of these verses by Mark and the intention of these statements by Jesus is to get us to see the desperateness of our need. We need forgiveness more desperately than the paralyzed man in verses 1 through 12 needed healing. Do you believe that? Stop and consider that for a moment. Do, do you really believe that? We need forgiveness more desperately than the paralyzed man in verses 1 through 12 needed healing. If we are unwilling to see our need for forgiveness, our situation is utterly hopeless. It is completely hopeless. There is nothing that can be done for us, which is the point of this text before us. Let's consider it together. Notice how Mark introduces it in verse 13. <clears throat> he tells us, Then Jesus went out again by the sea. This would be the Sea of Galilee, the large lake in northern Israel. And all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. Mark introduces this little paragraph by showing us a snapshot of the public ministry of Jesus. Multitudes flocked to him, gathered around him, and when they did, he taught them. That begs the question, what did he teach them? Well, he taught them lots of things, as we see throughout the Gospels. You can read in Matthew 5-7, through 7, the immortal Sermon on the Mount. You can read in Matthew 13, the parables of the kingdom, and other passages in the Gospel account. So he taught them lots of things, but there is one specific thing he taught them that is illustrated by this story. Jesus taught the people that they needed forgiveness, and he could provide them that forgiveness. He taught them that no human being, regardless of how wretched, is unsalvageable or beyond forgiveness. That is proven by what follows in this story. Verse 14 tells us, As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. At first glance, this verse seems completely out of place. I mean, what does this verse have to do with forgiveness? The reason why we are perplexed is because we are not immersed in the culture of the first century. But as we begin to understand what was really going on here, 
in this very brief statement by, by Mark, we begin to see that this is a striking illustration, a startling illustration of the fact that Jesus can forgive anyone. So let me give you the background. And as I do, keep in mind that this verse tells us, notice what it says, that Levi, whom we, we know better as Matthew, that's the name he's most commonly called by in the Gospels, Matthew, Levi, was sitting at the tax office. That's what Mark specifically tells us. How does this verse prove Jesus forgives sin? How does this verse illustrate that? Let me explain with a quote. Matthew was a traitor, an extortioner, a thief, and an outcast. You see, Matthew was a publican, a Jew hired by the Roman government to collect taxes from his fellow Jews to give to Rome. He was a first-class trader who worked for the oppressor. Not only that, but he bought the right from the Roman government to collect taxes, so he bought into their system. The government would stipulate a certain amount of tax that had to be given to Rome, but then the publican was free to keep anything else he collected. This, of course, led to bribes, extortion, and other abuses. There were two major classes of tax collectors, the Gabai and the Mokes. The Gabai were the general tax collectors who collected property tax, income tax, and poll tax. These taxes were standardized, so there was apparently little graft at this level. The second class of tax collectors was the Mokes, and they collected duty on everything. They set up their table where the roads crossed and collected on all the imports and exports and everything bought and sold. They set tolls on roads, bridges, harbors, axles, donkeys, packages, letters, etc. They taxed everything they could. Now there were two kinds of mokes. A great mokes and a little mokes. A great mokes hired someone to do the tax collecting for him so he could fade into the background. He really didn't want to be associated with the actual activity itself, and thus he retained some of his dignity. A little mokes, on the other hand, was too cheap and too greedy to hire somebody to collect the taxes, so he did it himself. He didn't care about the social stigma associated with such a job. This is what Matthew was, a little mokes. We see him here in this passage sitting at the tax office. He was a greedy extortioner and traitor to his people, end quote. This understanding gives us insight into the, some of the statements made about tax collectors in the gospel accounts. Let me show you a few of them. Back up with me to the previous gospel, the gospel of Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Here in the immortal Sermon on the Mount, Jesus acknowledges, well, even tax collectors, the lowest of all people, love those who love them. And if, you, if that's all we do as God's people, how are we any better? What, what do we do that goes beyond? 
Look at chapter 11 for another example of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 11, verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. That is a slur against tax collectors, and remarkably, Matthew chose to record it. Look at chapter 18 of his gospel. Chapter 18, verse 15. Chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus is teaching in this section. He says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So you see, when Mark mentions in chapter 2 of his gospel that Levi, better known as Matthew, was sitting at the tax office, he is showing that Jesus is willing to forgive anyone. Jesus was willing to grant salvation to anyone who would repent. Even someone who would turn against his own people, buy into the oppression of the oppressor, and steal from his own people, cheat them, rob them. Jesus will forgive such a person. Now back to Mark chapter 2. Notice the last phrase in verse 14 of Mark 2, where we read, Jesus said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. When Matthew walked away from his tax table, he walked away from his career. A lot more was at stake for him than for the fishermen who left their nets. If following Jesus didn't work out for the fishermen, they could go back to fishing. In fact, in John 21, they started to do that. But when Matthew left his tax table, the Roman government immediately replaced him. He walked away from his career to be useful to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was overwhelmed with gratitude that the Lord Jesus had forgiven him of all people. And this comes out in the following verses as we see Matthew's concern for other sinners demonstrated in the way he hosted a feast in his own house so Jesus could reach other sinners. Isn't that the way it goes? When we come to the realization of how much the Lord has forgiven us, we have an intense desire to see other sinners come to Christ. This is similar to what the Lord said once to a certain Pharisee. Go over to Luke's gospel, the very next one, chapter 7. Past Mark to Luke chapter 7. Down in verse 40. Luke 7, verse 40. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. 
And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Therefore she loved much, but to whom whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Levi, Matthew, is a perfect illustration of this truth. He realized how much the Lord forgave him, and as a result, it gave him a great love for his Lord and a great desire to see others forgiven as well. Matthew's love for the Lord was so strong that it just overflowed toward other sinners. Back to Mark chapter 2, and we'll see it illustrated. Go back to our text there in Mark 2. Verse 15 tells us, Now it happened as Jesus was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Interestingly, Dr. Luke tells us in his gospel record that Matthew prepared this feast in his own house, so Matthew paid the bill. Matthew, because of his humility, doesn't tell us this in his gospel record. And Mark doesn't specifically state it either. But Luke makes it clear that Matthew was the one who gave a great feast. It was a banquet. The purpose of this banquet was to give Jesus opportunity to reach other sinners. Matthew did this because he had such a great heart for the lost. But those who aren't willing to see that they are lost bristle at this whole idea. And that's verse 16. When the scribes and Pharisees saw Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? You can see what's going on here. The scribes and Pharisees thought they were better than these tax collectors and other sinners. The scribes and Pharisees didn't think they themselves were sinners in need of forgiveness. Therefore, they looked down upon these tax collectors and other sinners, and they looked down upon Jesus for having anything to do with these tax collectors and sinners. And specifically, notice what the text tells us, they looked down upon Jesus for eating with this group. In that culture, eating with someone was one of the most personal activities in which one could engage. Eating with with someone was a sign of love and acceptance and closeness. That's the idea behind the invitation of Jesus in Revelation 3.20, where he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. That's an invitation from Jesus to those who had shut him out, and it's an invitation of closeness and fellowship and intimacy. That is what eating together signified in that culture of the first century. 
And that is why Scripture tells us not to eat with a brother, Christian brother or sister, who is living in sin and will not repent. When you eat with him, you are saying that you fully accept him and everything is good, everything is fine, everything is as it should be. But if he or she is living in sin as a Christian and defaming the name of Christ, you really shouldn't communicate that message. Yes, you should love that brother or sister in Christ. And you should reach out to that person. But you should not give the impression that it is acceptable to be living in sin while you name the name of Christ. But this situation here in verse 16 is completely different. These tax collectors and sinners made no claim to be followers of God, representatives of God. They were people who needed salvation and forgiveness, and they knew it. That's why they were wanting to be near Jesus. That's why they came to the banquet. That's why they came to the feast. They had heard that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, and they knew they needed that forgiveness. But the Pharisees didn't understand any of this. They didn't recognize that they themselves needed forgiveness, and they certainly did not want to see these tax collectors and other sinners receive forgiveness. So they were outraged that Jesus was eating with a crowd like this. Before we go on, let me pause for just a moment to reinforce what I said a moment ago about the difference between how we are to behave toward believers and unbelievers. This can be very confusing for some Christians to understand. Our obligation and responsibility to Christians and non-Christians alike is to love them. That's what we're called to do. We are to love people. However, the expression of that love should look different depending on the person's standing with a relationship to the Lord. What I mean is, if you have a friend who is a non-Christian and that friend is living in sin, for, as an example, let's say he's living with his girlfriend, it would be okay for you to have lunch with your friend because you are trying to build a relationship with him to lead him to repentance and faith in Christ. But if you have a friend who is a Christian and that friend is living with his girlfriend, then you should not get together for lunch unless it is for the purpose of exhorting him to repent because you would be sending the message to him that it's no big deal that he's defaming the name of Christ. It is a big deal. It's a really big deal. And you don't want to go on with life as normal to send the wrong message to your Christian friend. So there is a distinction in the way we relate to people who are living in sin, and that distinction comes down to whether or not the person is a brother or sister in Christ. The church in Corinth was confused about this distinction. So Paul explained it to them very clearly in 1 Corinthians 5. Turn over there for just a moment. Turn over past the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The church in Corinth had a man in their assembly who named the name of Christ, called himself a Christian, claimed to be a Christian, maybe he was a Christian, but he was living in an immoral relationship with his stepmother. 
Needless to say, such an activity, such activity was scandalous to the name of Christ. So Paul wrote to the believers in this church to tell them that they ought not to go on with life as normal in their relationship to this man because that really would not be loving toward him and that would not be honoring to the Lord whom this man was defaming. But evidently the Corinthians misunderstood Paul and they thought he was saying that they ought to pull away from all sinners. And so he clarifies here in 1 Corinthians 5, in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle, he's referring to an earlier letter that we don't have in Scripture. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. And here Paul refers to a letter he had written prior to this letter. In that letter he states he had already instructed the church that if you continue to fellowship with an immoral brother or sister in Christ, then you send the wrong message to him that it's okay to live that way. That's what Paul had said. But the Corinthians had misunderstood what Paul meant by his instructions. They assumed he meant that you are not to have any contact with anyone who is living a sinful life. Immediately you can see the problem with that kind of thinking. How can you get away from non-Christian, unrepentant sinners? How? Our world is filled with unbelieving, unrepentant sinners. So Paul clarifies in the next verse. He says in verse 10, Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetousness, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Here Paul seeks to correct their misunderstanding. In his previous letter, he did not mean to imply that God wants us to stay completely away from all people who are unbelieving, unrepentant sinners. Certainly, we need to be careful about our relationships because 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Evil company corrupts good habits. So we need to be careful not to allow our relationships with unbelievers to cause us to lower our standard or be pulled into sin. But if we try to have no contact with unbelieving, unrepentant sinners, then as Paul says here, we would need to leave this world. You just got to get out of the world. Furthermore, if we had no contact whatsoever with unbelievers, then we would have no opportunities for sharing the gospel and living the truth in front of those without Christ. So here in this verse, Paul makes it clear that he did not intend them uh, intend for them to take his statement that way. What he intended to say to them, and is now reiterating, is that we should not associate with, keep company with, fellowship with those who claim they are followers of Christ, affirm they are followers of Christ, and are at the same time living a life that shames him. So he states that in the next verse. He says in verse 11, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. That's pretty clear, isn't it? If you have someone in your life who is named a brother or sister in Christ, 
but lives a life that is a complete contradiction to that claim and shames the name of Christ, you are not to fellowship with that person. The last phrase says not even to eat with such a person because remember, in that culture, that was a sign of acceptance and that everything is great, everything is fine, everything is okay. So Paul's point here is, or the Holy Spirit's point here is, that, w- that you don't want in any way to give the impression that what he or she is doing is acceptable. Let me say that again because we get lost in the details sometimes. Here's the principle. You don't want in any way to give the impression that what he or she is doing is acceptable. Don't give that impression. Yet well-meaning Christians do this very thing sometimes. And they usually do so because they think it's the loving thing to do. Beloved, please hear what the Lord is saying in this passage. If you have someone in your life who affirms that he is a Christian, yet that person is living a life that is shaming Christ, living a life of debauchery, flagrant sin. Don't go on with your relationship to that person and give the impression that what he or she is doing is okay. That is the message you send when you continue to just keep company with, associate with, eat with, fellowship with, hang out with that person. I have seen and heard this, heard of this so many times through the years, and it's a tragic mistake that Christians make. Now, please hear me. This is not saying that you need to be mean to the person or rude to him or vindictive or unkind. No, no, no. But, but you need to let him or her know that your friendship cannot continue on as if nothing has changed if he or she is living in sin and shaming the name of Christ. Now that's an altogether different issue than Mark chapter 2. This 1 Corinthians 5 is how do we relate to a Christian brother or sister doing this? Mark 2 is a completely different scenario. So let's go back now to Mark chapter 2. What we see Jesus doing here in Mark 2 is completely unrelated to the instructions to us there in 1 Corinthians 5. Two completely different contexts, different scenarios, different issues. 1 Corinthians 5 is talking about how we relate to believers who are living in sin. But this incident in Mark 2 is an example of reaching out to unbelievers, unsaved people, non-Christians, people that make no claim to be followers of God, those who make no claim that they have a relationship with God and know God. So Jesus reached out to these unbelievers. Matthew arranged it. He set it up. He, he, he paid the, the, for the banquet so Jesus could be around other tax collectors and sinners. And when Jesus did this, the Pharisees objected. They were furious. Notice the response of Jesus in verse 17. Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now what does this mean? 
This is subtle sarcasm by our Lord to say to the Pharisees that they could not be forgiven because they wouldn't acknowledge that they needed forgiveness. They thought they were spiritually well and whole and pure. They assumed they were spiritually healthy. But these tax collectors and other sinners at this banquet, they knew they weren't. They knew their condition. They they knew that they needed forgiveness. That was the contrast. Jesus was saying, those who do not know and understand and recognize that they are spiritually sick will not turn to me for the solution for their sin. As I said back at the beginning of the message, the two great barriers to salvation have always been, one, refusal to recognize the need for it, and two, the belief that it can be earned or attained. Those two damning ideas go hand in hand. If you don't recognize how awful your spiritual condition is before God, you can easily assume that it is minimal enough to be able to rectify it by engaging in religion and ceremony and ritual and liturgy and good works. Oh, the wretchedness of our human hearts. We are no different than the scribes and Pharisees of the first century. And that is why Jesus tries to shake us up, to wake us up with this last statement in verse 17. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is not implying that anyone is righteous in and of himself. He is not implying that there are those who don't need to repent, not at all. He is saying that he came to call those who recognize they need to repent. He says he came to call those who understand and grasp and see that they need to repent. And anyone, anyone who is willing to repent, regardless of the wretchedness, regardless of the sinfulness, Jesus will forgive. Jesus will grant salvation. So is that you? Do you see the desperateness of your need? Do you realize that you cannot make up for your sin by yourself in any way, no matter how good you try to be or how religious you try to be? Do you understand that you are spiritually sick? Do you recognize that you need to repent of your sins and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? If so, listen to this, you are in a good position. It sounds strange in a sense. If you realize how bad you are, you're in a good position. If you realize the desperateness of your need, you're in a good position. Because Jesus can help you. But he cannot help. Oh, that sounds strange to say. But it's accurate. He cannot help those who don't see their need. And those who think they're good enough or those who think they can earn their way by engaging in religion, ceremony, works, whatever it is. Jesus cannot help people like that. Just as he could not help the scribes and Pharisees. So which category are you in today? 
Do you see the desperateness of your need or do you not? Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head, close your eyes here at the end of our time together this morning. Let's take a couple minutes to think about what we have seen from the ministry and words of our Lord Jesus on this very unique occasion when he forgave Matthew and transformed Matthew to such a degree that Matthew had so much love for his Savior that it spilled over into love for other lost people. And he was willing to do whatever, pay whatever cost, whatever it would cost him to to expose others to this man who has the authority to forgive sins. Remember what we saw in Luke 7, the one who recognizes that he's been forgiven much, loves much. Beloved, if we minimize our sin, if we think we're not really that bad, without realizing it, we detract from our love for Christ. It's when we see the wretchedness of our human hearts, the deceitfulness of our hearts, the wickedness of our hearts. It's when we recognize that, that we turn to Jesus for forgiveness, and the result is much love, great love for this one who would forgive such an immensity of sin. So let's not be those who tend to minimize our sin. That's, that's counterproductive. Let's recognize the desperateness of our need, the greatness of Christ's forgiveness, so that it will produce in us an immensity of love. And if you're here today without salvation, without Christ's forgiveness, the worst thing you can do is to assume that you're not that bad. That you're not as bad as Hitler or maybe your neighbor or other people you know. You, you've never murdered anyone or, or whatever. That's the worst thing you can do. To minimize your sin, to downplay it, it's the absolute worst thing you can do. The best thing you can do is just acknowledge it. Admit it. Lay it before the Lord. He knows it anyway. And just say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Admit your need. Acknowledge your need. Because when you do, you're in a good position. Jesus can help those who recognize their need. But he cannot help those who deny their need. So if you're here today, you don't know Christ personally, you need to repent. You need to acknowledge your need. And in the quietness of your heart, call out to Jesus for his forgiveness. Ask him to forgive you and to transform you just as he forgave and transformed Levi or Matthew. And Jesus will hear such a humble cry. His word makes that clear. Father, what a powerful little, a powerful little story we've been privileged to contemplate this morning. To see Jesus can and will forgive anyone who will humble himself, repent, and acknowledge his need. Matthew is such a powerful illustration of that. Jesus forgave 
and transformed. A thief, an extortioner, a traitor. Someone who would stoop so low to do what Matthew did to his own people. Yet he was freely forgiven and transformed by the forgiveness of Christ into a man who loved Christ and loved other lost people who also needed forgiveness. What a powerful story in history, but we know it doesn't end in history because it's also for us today. That same powerful transformation can take place in our lives if we too will humble ourselves and acknowledge our need. So we pray for anyone here who needs forgiveness, that he or she would come to the to the point of acknowledging that, recognizing that, and call out for it. And Father, for those of us who have received your forgiveness, may we not detract from it by minimizing our sin, but rather go the other way and recognize the magnanimity of our sins so that our love for Jesus and other sinners will be immense. Accomplish this in our hearts and lives. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.